Exodus 12 today. We'll begin in verse 33. Um, I have two big ideas that I want to tell you on the front end. Um, We're going to work our way toward these two concepts, and so if you're taking notes, this is a great opportunity to write these things down. No pressure from me. I'm not taking notes of you based on who does this and who doesn't, but I just want to give you these mile markers as a help, hopefully, this morning. The first big concept that we'll see emerge from this passage of Scripture is that faith is fed by God's faithfulness. Faith is fed by God's faithfulness. So we'll interact around the idea of what faith is, where it comes from. Um, It's possible that what a lot of us think of or refer to as faith in our own lives maybe isn't. Maybe it's just our own will, trying as hard as we can to do a thing that is actually God's business. And then two, uh, Yahweh, we're going to use the personal name of God as he introduced himself to Moses back in Exodus 3. Yahweh is communally compassionate. There's something corporate, there's something plural about the way that uh, God interacts with humanity. So we're going to see those things highlighted. We'll begin reading, as I said, in verse 33 of Exodus chapter 12. You'll remember, if you were here last week, the very last words we heard from the Pharaoh of Egypt uh, was a request that all of the Israelites leave and leave quickly and take everything this time. This is the first time he's allowed them uh, in the state of negotiation to leave with all their flocks and their herds. And he says, and bless me also. Now we see at a larger scale how the people of Egypt respond overall. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. They've just experienced the death of their firstborn. From their perspective, they have no reason to believe that God is done doing this work in their midst. So they want to go ahead and solve whatever problem it is that's causing them to be on the wrong side of God's wrath. Verse 34, so the people took their dough. Before it was leavened, they took their kneading bowls and they bound them up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So as they're getting dressed, they're tucking their bowl that they make bread with full of dough up against their bodies and tying it on tight. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and for gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And in this way, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakoth. We think that's about a nine-day journey. Sakoth is probably a place where there was a copper mine. So this is God's people in the land of Goshen leaving sort of the main slave colony they've lived in and beginning to head southeast and stopping along the way at Sakoth to pick up another large portion of the enslaved people of Israel. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. This is where uh, I get the rough number of about a million and a half people. If you scale basic typical demographics in human history, it would make sense that 600,000 men means that there's roughly the same number of uh, women and then about half again as many children. So we get 1.5 million from that. But notice in verse 38, it was a mixed multitude who went up with them, and very many livestock, both flocks and herd. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, the bread that they carried in their um, bowls against their bodies. For it was not leavened because they were thrust or kicked out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And again, this is according, if you remember, to last week and two weeks before that, God's recommendations and explanation of how they should navigate the Passover. This was his plan all along, was to have them to be ready, physically prepared, to go quickly when the time came. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all of the hosts of the Lord, or Yahweh, that's his name, went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Do you remember when we started this book 
in February. Many of you were not here at that point. You might have even lived in another state and have since moved here as part of your job or the um, career path that you're on. Um, we began the book of Exodus looking at the book of Genesis. So we started at the beginning of the Bible. We tried to analyze Genesis in two weeks. And the very end of that second week of looking at the book of Genesis, we met a guy named Joseph. Joseph was a son of a man named Jacob. You may have heard people say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three names go together a lot of times when we talk about God. You may have picked that up if you were a participant in Sunday school as a kid or you ever went to a vacation Bible school. Well, at some point, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. And this is where we get the name Israel. God told Jacob, I'm going to change your name. Jacob means deceiver, but I've changed your life. So I'm going to give you a name now that has to do with me and the providence that I'm going to create in your life. And not just your life, but as I keep my promises to Abraham, your grandfather, to build a nation out of you you biologically, I want everybody to, to think of us as a new nation, as Israel, as my people. And so Joseph is one of the sons of this man. He gets sold into slavery in Egypt and eventually, as a grown-up, has an opportunity to welcome his brothers and the rest of his family into Egypt. They leave the desert land where they lived to avoid a multi-year famine in that region, and then they stay in Egypt, and that's how the Israelites show up in Egypt in the first place. They came as guests at the beginning, honored guests of their brother who had a political position in the nation of Egypt, but eventually they become enslaved. If you think back to Exodus chapter 1, in verse 13 of chapter 1, the Pharaoh decided to enslave God's people. And he did that because he was threatened by them. It was totally a demographic issue. He saw them growing rapidly. They'd been blessed by God, had a lot of kids. Those kids kept living. They kept getting married and having more kids. And this new nation of people that started out as just a group of 70, a very small family, they grew to the point that the Pharaoh thought, if I don't break these people down while I have a chance, they're going to run us out of our own land. And so he enslaved them. When enslaving them wasn't enough to suppress them fully, he decided to kill all of their sons because his greatest fear was that they would revolutionize, that from within their young men would become warriors and they would decide there's enough of us and a few enough Egyptians around here that we can take from the Egyptians what we want. And so his initial policy was to employ the Israelite um, midwives, what I was going to say, and the midwives' responsibility from, Egypt, from Pharaoh's perspective was to kill the babies as soon as they were born. Well, these midwives honored God and refused to do that. And so then the Pharaoh created a national policy where he said, anybody, any Egyptian anywhere, if you hear the cries of a newborn, you have the permission of the national government to go into someone else's home and check and see if the baby is a male. And if they are, grab that child and toss that child into the river. And that's the way that will keep Israel from growing and taking over our land. This is the origin of the oppression of God's people in chapter 1. There's a boy born underneath that rule, underneath that law named Moses. And his mother and his sister work together to put him in this tarred up basket that's basically a submarine to get him out to the ocean, hoping that somebody somewhere will find him and save him. Ironically, God leads the daughter of the Pharaoh himself to find the baby. And God subverts even Pharaoh's own household such that his daughter is the one to rear and raise this Hebrew Israelite boy in, the, in the, the home of the Egyptian king so that Moses grows up understanding and knowing a lot about the ins and outs of Egyptian life and being perfectly equipped to set his people free. He tries to do that at the wrong time. He murders a man, flees to the desert, and stays there for 40 years. And in the meantime, we saw this at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, the people of God cry out. And the Bible doesn't say they cry out to Yahweh directly by name. They just cry out to anybody who might be listening. At this point, 400 years into their uh, being stuck, being uh, enslaved in Egypt, they've probably embraced the Egyptian gods. They're probably expecting the very same pantheon we've seen God dismantle across the ten plagues to be who will deliver them, to be the cosmic power that answers their call. But instead, 
In chapter 2 of Exodus, Yahweh says that he hears them, he sees their affliction, and he becomes familiar with it. The Bible uses the word know. He knows what is going on with them. When we see in verse 42 of what we just read that this is a, a night of watching by the Lord, what the Bible means is that God was watching personally focused on the events of the night of the Passover, he's dialed in. He's laser focused on this specific set of actions. What's going to happen to lead his people out of Egypt? And the reason he does that is to make sure that he saves his people in exactly the same way that he promised. And I could say that in the plural sense, in the same ways that he promised. This brings us to our first point, that faith is fed by God's faithfulness. When we read Exodus 12, we see a comprehensive follow-through on the commitments that Yahweh has made up to this point. So I just want to rapid fire highlight a few things for you. If you haven't been here for this entire series, I want you to notice the specific weird ways that God uh, works out the salvation of his people the night of the Passover. They have directly to do with his promises prior to this. First is Exodus chapter 3 verse 8. This is the first moment that Yahweh speaks to Moses his intention of setting his people free. They've cried out to him for years. He finally has decided to come to them personally and to create a plan to set them free. Twelve verses later in Exodus 3.20, God says that Pharaoh will not relent until God is done pouring out his plagues, which God refers to at that point as signs. This is why in plague seven and again in plague nine, when we see Pharaoh's heart hardened, we're not supposed to be surprised by that. Because A, it's all Pharaoh ever wanted was to have the internal strength to resist Yahweh and to somehow prove himself to be divine and good enough and strong enough to not need God. But at the same time, it also justifies God's ends because he made a promise to his people that that's exactly how it would go. The following two verses in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, God promises that Israel will not leave Egypt empty-handed. This seemed impossible if not improbable, totally impossible to God's people, that they would be slaves, yet when the time came for them to leave the nation of Egypt, they would have more money, that the Egyptians themselves would end up funding the Exodus. What are the odds of that? Well, God says 100%. He's going to make it happen. Three chapters later in Exodus chapter 6, Yahweh promises that by way of his salvation, he will make personal introduction. This will become his name tag. The Exodus will become his qualifying statement into the lives of his people, that for generations they will be known as the people who were set free from Egypt. This will be the source of their national identity. And to the same end in Exodus chapter 7, Yahweh says that his judgment upon Egypt will be his personal introduction to the Egyptians. As we read ahead in the rest of our Bible, whether it's in uh, the remainder of the narrative of God's people moving into the promised land, the books of Joshua and Judges, or if it's within the Psalms, even at parts of the New Testament, non-believing people have heard of God when God's people encounter them just randomly, whether it's in war or they cross paths and decide to trade a little bit on their way. The reputation of Yahweh in that region for thousands of years is rooted in the Exodus. The Exodus is God's story in the Old Testament. It is the thing he has done that sets him apart from every other power and every other entity on the face of the planet. And then finally, just a couple of weeks ago, we read these verses that in Exodus 12, Israel would leave Egypt rapidly. When the time came, they would go quickly and they would go in unison. They would leave all together. So all of these promises, hopefully you picked up on some of them, are fulfilled when God's people finally leave, when God releases what the Bible calls the destroyer to come and wreak havoc among the houses of the people of Egypt. He is following through. Now, if you're a believer, what I hope is true for you is that you would say, duh, this is how our God works, right? We've, we have lived experience of his faithfulness. 
But I'm afraid that that's not always the case. I'm afraid that sometimes we've been told that we need faith so badly that we skip all of the steps between not having faith and having faith, and we just try to white-knuckle this sort of mental ascent, and then we label that as faith. That I'm just going to try in my own strength to believe a thing that really seems impossible to me, and I can tell you the litmus test for that is when your life finally gets hard, that thing will just, it'll just disintegrate in your hands. That self-contrived, self-sourced sense of commitment to, to the divine will go away when it seems like the divine has gone away from you. That's the way that our hearts react. But the author of Hebrews in the New Testament seems to think that faith is critical. If we're going to have any kind of meaningful relationship with God, he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God, to make God happy, to have a relationship in which God appreciates our presence in that relationship. He says, this is what I mean by that. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what is faith? Faith has been defined as believing in what cannot be seen, a sort of uh, Hail Mary guess into the future that based on enough people who love me, I guess I'll believe a thing that I don't necessarily have a lot of evidence for. And that's a weak and flimsy definition. I know many of you would define it differently than that, but as a person who spends a lot of time meeting with Christians, that seems to be the functional definition of faith, is I hope it works out. I know God could do it. I think my odds are a little bit better inside the church than outside the church, but it's not a sense of assurance, not really. It's not a sense of belief or, or learned or lived promise on God's part that proves to us that he's reliable. So to me, I think it's better and easier to think of faith in terms of what it does. What is its function? That may be a more helpful thing to define than necessarily what its substance is. So I'll say this to you. I think that faith is where our physical, finite, limited reality makes contact with the unseen reality of God. His spiritual realm, to quote the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, the heavenly places. There is an element of creation that's outside of what your five senses can interact with. And I believe that faith operates as a catalyst for us ultimately to live according to Jesus' expectations. Because faith understands that God has a method to him. Faith has this learned, lived experience where God has proven himself to be reliable, where he's proven himself to be faithful. Faith allows us to navigate the character of God, whereas if we live a life without faith, we can ultimately never hope to get out from underneath the umbrella of the scientific method. That's probably the best philosophy of life that we can find if we have no faith. Now, we all naturally learn this way. Most of what we get in our school system, whether we're homeschooled or public schooled, is, is cause and effect, right? That's the way we talk to our kids a lot of times. In my own home, we parent with a, a high view of personal responsibility. If my daughter comes to me with a small problem that doesn't put her life in danger, I will more often than not hand that problem back to her. I'll try to consult her on how to navigate that, but I want her to understand cause and effect. I want her to understand personal responsibility, the weight of her own choices. That's not wrong. However... That on its own cannot bring a human soul to life. It cannot create an eternal connection with God. It can give you the tools that you need to stay out of jail in your 30s and 40s, but it doesn't ultimately bring life to the fullest into your human experience. We learn responsibility. We learn the direct connection between the way we live and the quality of life that we have. These are the philosophical laws of nature, right? The idea that even in our relationships, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Our instinctual understanding of morality naturally connects us to this world. We expect bad things to happen to bad people and good things to happen to good people. In fact, some of the hardest challenge, challenging questions of our faith come out of the experience that that's not always the case. 
that sometimes it seems like very bad things happen to very good people and very good things happen to very bad people and we struggle to grapple with that and grasp what is happening. We learn by experience that hot stoves burn our hands. We learn by experience that spit tends to travel the same direction as the wind, right? You only have to learn that lesson one time. And we learn by experience that the people who we hurt have very, very long memories. We don't need faith in order to survive life on this planet. We can lean into our instincts. We can rely on our own personality. We can spend time trying to hide our weaknesses or to try to make ourselves into someone who has succeeded by human standards. The author C.S. Lewis, you may be familiar with him if you've ever read or seen the Chronicles of Narnia or interacted with his great book, Mere Christianity. He describes the human struggle for self-realization as basically a story of failure as long as human history. He says this in Mere Christianity, out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, our classes, any empire, all slavery, this is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Faith is what we need when we realize that none of the life lessons that our parents taught us, none of our morals, none of our good behavior, none of our polite participation in society can actually bring our inner self to life. When we begin to sense that there is more to us and more to life than the next victory or the next loss that we might experience, we begin to develop a new appetite. We sense that there has to be more to life than this, and we want to get our hands on whatever that more actually is. We crave something the physical world can't give us. We go looking for that thing. And I believe that if our search for that is genuine and God's people live faithfully around us, we will end up finding Jesus. When we find Jesus, then for the first time, we make contact with a divine being. We find love that can afford to be unconditional in our lives because our lives are so inconsequential in proportion to Jesus' life. Every human relationship that we bear, we end up carrying the weight of another person's expectations, all of their hope, all of their despair, all of their worry. As we give and take secrets with the people who are close to us, we find ourselves chained to one another. Now, that's a negative perspective. For the believer, that can be life-giving community, but ultimately, our souls can barely bear the weight of our own lives, let alone each other. We find in Jesus a strength of soul significant enough to bear the weight of our lives. So then, in response to Jesus' real love, his love that doesn't fit into our transactional or emotional systems of giving or taking value or recognition, something new is birthed in us. That appetite meets the thing that it's looking for, and we have faith. Faith that is like a new sixth sense that the Spirit of God forms and fits within us so that we can interact with and begin to understand the spiritual side of creation. That faith looks for a focus. It looks for an object to orbit around. We say we put our faith in something. For instance, in my life, I don't have a lot of faith in the Dallas Cowboys, especially in the month of December. They're just not going to win football games. If you don't care about sports, I apologize. I try to stay away from sports. But I can just tell you, okay, when it comes to a thing I'm never going to bet my life on, it's going to be the Cowboys' ability to win a game in December. It doesn't happen. But that new sixth sense, it looks for something. Can it trust money? Well, it tries at first, right? If I could just make more money, I'd have more security. I could increase the margin in my life. This is the great lie of the Enlightenment, that if we can industrialize and mechanize things, we'll have more time to do what we want, yet we work more now today than we ever have in history because now we're competing with the very systems that we built that were supposed to give us rest. 
This is human life. This is all of human history. We accelerate more and more over time to this ultimate destructive conclusion that we're hurtling toward faster and faster and faster. And our faith is looking for something along the way in which it can find rest. I want to say this to you again. If our search for truth and life and love is genuine, if that's really what we're looking for and we're not just antagonistically exploring different spiritual avenues of life, if we're looking for Jesus, even if we don't know we are yet, and Jesus' disciples around us are living faithfully, genuinely, in love, then we will find Jesus, and our faith will find the object it's been looking for. And not just because we need to fit into another group. There's not just a social payoff to becoming a Christian and having a church to go to. This isn't just a building your kids can get married in someday. The payoff is in the personal connection to the divine that we find uniquely in Jesus, that unlike every other religious and philosophical system in human history, God has come to us instead of us having to fight our way to him. And anybody who's lived very long in this world knows that we don't meet our own goals very often. So we need a God like that, a God who would prioritize us over his own eternal satisfaction and security in heaven, who would be driven by a love for someone who can never reciprocate that's so encompassing that he would give his life for you and I. Again, if I can reference C.S. Lewis, he wrote later in Near Christianity this about what it looks like to have that kind of faith. He says to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying that you trusted a person if you would not take their advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to Jesus, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Faith makes contact with Jesus and that faith can immediately sense that it has found what it is looking for. I'm not talking about making contact with people who call themselves Christians. I'm not talking about making contact with the church. I'm talking about making contact with Christ individually, personally, not privately, but in a way that is transformative and unique to you and your experience. Now, I don't want to undersell the holiness of encountering Jesus, but faith connects and finds fulfillment in meeting Jesus in the same way that our eyes and our ears and our skin finds a sense of awe and fulfillment when we look across our city from the top of Flattop or O'Malley or the Dome. That sense of awe is a small shadow of what it means to be connected with the divine. We have a similar experience sonically when we attend a live concert. There's a reason people will pay thousands of dollars to sit in a room where the music is so loud they have to put earplugs in. It's ironic, but we love it because it just it grabs our body. We, can, we are so able to embody that experience because we're designed that way. We were built by God to be people who can embody something outside of ourselves, who can be a vessel, a word the Bible uses in both the Old and New Testament over and over again to describe the way that we are filled up with God. So we shouldn't be surprised when enough amps of bass begins to fill our experience as well and drive something that begins to feel faintly holy in us. Now, I'm not saying those things carry God's holiness in them innately. What I'm saying is they begin to whet the appetite of this faith that's looking for something ultimate to put itself in. We have a similar experience when we splash into a pool on a hot summer day or slip into a hot bath after playing in the snow. Briefly, for just a few seconds, we don't want anything else but that thing. 
Our mind doesn't go to our finances. We're not so deeply anxious that we can't enjoy that physical experience. Everything else goes away for just a few beats. That's what I'm talking about when we make a connection with the thing that we were designed to be connected to. This is in part what the Bible means when it uses the word glory. A deep, almost primal sense of rightness. Not moral rightness, but value in another. Deeply connected to what it has landed on. And for us, we will not find this outside of Jesus. We will never be unanxious people until we have connected with Christ, until our faith has found its home in God. That kind of faith is fed and grows as it consumes God's faithfulness. In the same way that a great concert doesn't make you turn off music forever because you finally heard music as good as it gets, or a scoop of really good ice cream doesn't cause you to stop eating dessert forever, if only, right? Let me tell you, I would be on a very good diet if that was the case. Making contact with Jesus only increases our appetite for him. We want more and more, and the more we know him, the more we want to know him. The more he follows through, the more we trust him. This is what I want for you today. I want you to see the threads of promise that are running against the current of human experience and expectations. I want you to find a different way to live your life than cause and effect and personal responsibility. And I want you to try to trace those threads back, if you can, into Exodus 12. As we read about Yahweh's judgment of sin, of his physical deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, in the spiritual rescue that he orchestrated for his people, in the sacrificial blood of lambs, all of these things are meant to feed your faith. All of these things are in this book to give God credit for who he really is so that you can see him more clearly, so that you have more and more reference points for his faithfulness and better and better reasons to trust him. I want faith to be so much more for you than a sort of spiritual guess that you're making about your future. I want your faith to be fed by God's faithfulness, to not only set his people free, but to do it exactly as he promised. Let's keep reading, beginning in verse 43. The Lord then said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute or the rule or the law of the Passover. And then after that colon, here's the law. No foreigner shall eat of this, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be, excuse me, eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep this statute. If a stranger sojourns with you and would like to keep the Passover of the Lord, then simply let all of his males be circumcised first. And then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. He'll be just like you, he's saying. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of this meal. There shall be one law, the same law, for both the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, if you want to be part of my covenant, there's one way in. All of the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The second idea today is that Yahweh is communally compassionate. Now, first in these verses, God speaks in a way that reinforces the points that we looked at two weeks ago, that the the objective of the Passover is twofold. One, it's designed to be unifying for God's people but it also functions to set them apart from the rest of humanity. We talked about holiness and unity and how they're always in tension for the believer. And that's a theme that shows up even as God is first birthing his people out of the nation of Egypt. But then God draws a dividing line here in these verses. And he uses a common point of friction in our context to do do so. He leans into nationality 
as a reason to separate people from one another. And that doesn't make a ton of sense initially if you're a person who has followed Jesus very long because Jesus doesn't seem to acknowledge nationality very often, if at all. We have to pay really close attention to God's differentiation between his people and what verse 45 calls a foreigner. Because if we read it at face value, I promise you, you will misunderstand what God is talking about. Think about what nationality means for the Israelites at this point in their life as a nation. For them, 100% of who they are is defined by having been delivered. That's all. That's it. It's the only thing that makes them different from anybody around them at this point. They have no land to claim. There is no border for them to defend. They have no culture at all of their own. They're just Egyptians by culture. It's all they've known in the land of their captors. And they barely even have their own language. Chapters later, in the way that God lays out his first set of laws for his people, God hints at the idea that the youngest people among Israel who've been set free don't even know Hebrew or Aramaic. They're such products of their culture that they only even speak Egyptian. So these are not people who can easily discriminate against others. If an Egyptian snuck into their midst, how would they even know? I mean, yeah, maybe he wouldn't or she wouldn't bear the scars of slavery, but aside from that, if they hunched over enough and wore their bowl in the same way and had on the right robes, you'd never know who God's people were physically based on their external qualities. These people are weak. They have no military ability. They are basically nomads, and they just finished several lifetimes worth of slavery. And so you know that they carry many mental and spiritual scars in addition to the physical damage that that slavery has done to their bodies. The only thing that they have that can bind them together is God's unconditional love for them. And they have two feasts, two little feasts, each about a week and a half long that allow them to participate in being called out by God. Their nationality is based 100% on having been saved by God. So when Yahweh identifies the foreigner in verse 45, he's not speaking so much about people from other countries, at least not at this point in the life of Israel, but he is speaking of people who are foreign to the experience of the Israelites. People who are not from out of town, but people who are from outside of the covenant. Now, given that context, his command makes sense, right? The sign that marks Israel as his people is only to be participated in by God's people. This is a family boundary. It's not really a nationalistic or even an ethnic boundary at all. God is setting a boundary around his people by way of an act that he gave to his people to remind them of their identity. It would be foolish to try to remind somebody of an identity that they don't have. That wouldn't make any sense at all. In a way, this begins to sound communal, but it doesn't sound too compassionate because God seems to be restricting part of his blessing to only a few people. That compassion comes into verse in view, excuse me, comes into view in verse 48. God communicates that in order to be a part of this gathering, the Passover, these two feasts, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are back to back, in order to do that and to participate in a living memory to embody God's salvation, all a person has to do is embody the sign of his covenant promises. And if they want to do that, then based on the promises God made to Abraham, the only covenant that hangs over his people at this point, simply the males have to be circumcised. Now, in 2021, circumcision is controversial, and it is significant in the life of a man, okay? We have sterile operating rooms today. We have really sharp tools. We have medically trained experts wielding those tools. Even given the relative safety of the procedure today, you rarely, if ever, hear of a man submitting to circumcision as an adult. Typically, the procedure happens when a boy is born or it doesn't happen at all. Yet Yahweh's prescription in Exodus 12 has grown men in mind. 
These verses contain some of our first examples of Yahweh's provision for slaves within his people. And I'll just tell you, we don't have time today, but we're going to go there. We're going to go deep. So just stay with us and we're going to deal with this, all of it. I'm going to help you understand what's going on without pulling punches. But the point I need you to understand now is that slaves are not babies. So our concept of circumcision happening pretty close to birth, not what God is talking about. The same could be said for sojourning strangers who have entourages of men and women who work for them. They are also not babies. This provision is for grown-ups. Yahweh is making a way for men and women to enter into his people. And because they can't do that by crossing a border or saying a pledge or passing some kind of test of patriotism, then they need to embody the sign of salvation, the thing that it, it is that binds the people together in the first place. So circumcision becomes the doorway through which fathers and husbands have to pass if they want their families to participate in Yahweh's annual communal feast. If they want to live under the banner of God's covenant, then they will take that covenant seriously by embodying it. And only those who take the covenant seriously are going to be willing to experience circumcision by way of bronze knife and a large flat rock in 1400 B.C., this is a significant life-changing event. Am I being clear with you what it is that we're dealing with here? Okay, men, you can unclench yourselves, okay? Here's why this is compassionate. We're going to move on from that concept. Because anybody can get in on what Yahweh is doing. Anybody, literally anybody can. Any human being who's willing to embody the sign of the covenant can participate in the blessings of the covenant. This includes other tribes who were also enslaved along with Israel in the nation of Egypt. It even includes some Egyptians in verse 38, when the Bible tells you that a mixed multitude went out of the land of Egypt, that includes at least some ethnically Egyptian people. People who earlier in the process of the plagues acknowledged what Yahweh was doing, realized he was the only God who had any power, and submitted their lives to him. Even people from among the oppressors of Israel can join them under the umbrella of Yahweh's covenant if they are willing to be cut if they are willing to be identified as belonging to Yahweh instead of all of the gods of Egypt. The communal compassion, the blessings of God are available to anybody who wants to join in. And if we can just think briefly about the New Testament, in the Gospels of Jesus, this model follows what happens in Exodus 12. If you think about what Jesus does, his first action, his first public huge step into the world is the cross itself. He sets his people apart while still binding them together. It mirrors God's expectations of the Lamb's blood above the doors at the Passover. Jesus' sacrifice becomes the basis for all Christian community. And the righteousness that he gives us sets us apart from the world around us. Now, into this covenant community, Jesus speaks primarily by way of the Apostle Paul. This is majority showing up in the epistles in the New Testament. God speaks expectations and possibilities about what it means to be a part of his body on earth. To become his new kingdom. To become temples, to quote the Apostle Paul, of the Holy Spirit of God. And he marks us in a similar way to how he marked the people of Israel. Our sign today is water baptism. We immerse ourselves in water to show the world and each other that we have died with Jesus and that he has raised us into new life. This is our passing over from life, excuse me, from death into life like the Passover. Similarly, the other sacrament that we hold, the, the communal event in our regular lives as Christians is to gather to eat the same meal that Jesus ate with his first disciples before his death. And just like Yahweh's boundaries around Passover, we have boundaries around that communal meal. If you've ever been here when we've taken communion, we did this a week ago, we try to politely ask you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, to refrain, to abstain from the meal because you are currently outside of the sign of the new covenant. If you've not submitted to baptism and therefore communicated that Jesus has saved you, then 
the meal is essentially meaningless for you. But just like Yahweh's provision for inclusion in his covenant community, all of us who are born today outside of God's covenant community, which is all of us in this room, we have access to the covenant if we align ourselves with Jesus, if we will participate in the sign of his communal compassion. And if I can bring us back full circle to land the plane here, we, this new covenant people, we now collectively have all of the scriptures to feed our faith. That's the gift of the Bible. It's a source for that faith that's looking for a place to put itself that is inexhaustible. I've known people over 100 years old who've been reading the Bible for 80 of those years, and every day when they open it, there is some new insight for their soul. That is a source for your faith that will not be exhausted uniquely. After 80 years of marriage, it's possible. You may know the person that you've married inside and out. There may be no changes, no surprises. Probably not. But I can guarantee you that even if that relationship becomes stale and predictable, that person who is most close to you in life, that your relationship with Jesus never will be. A.W. Tozer said that eternity is like waking up every morning with something new to learn about God forever. Something new, some new thing that re-triggers that response in you that says, this is incredible, this is amazing, it's unparalleled. That's what we have to look forward to, but it begins for us today, and we can access that kind of food for our faith in the scriptures. We remind ourselves of God's faithfulness when we gather under Jesus' authority to hear the word preached. We remind each other of God's faithfulness when we gather around the waters of baptism to share and participate in the new sign of the new covenant. We encourage faith in one another when we eat the communal meal together, remembering what Jesus has done for us and embodying that sacrifice because God keeps his promise. Even the least significant promises God keeps and God welcomes people into his family. Even the least significant people God welcomes into his family. So church, may we feast in God's faithfulness and may we embrace God's welcome to all people. May we not be gatekeepers of this gospel, but instead people who swing wide the doors of our lives and let God be the one to sort through whether somebody is in or out. Our responsibility is to make the invitation clear. More than anything else, may we all find our lives in Jesus. That's my hope for you. I wanna pray for you. Father, thank you for your word which I hope has, has rung clear today among us. Um, I ask God that um, where I may have failed to be clear, where I may have failed to connect dots, that you would allow us to understand your fulfillment of your promises in this scripture, the specific ways that you personally navigated and took responsibility for keeping every commitment that you made, and that, God, we would see that your compassion is communal in nature and that it's not simply to set a people apart so that they can endure and white-knuckle their way into eternity. It's so that that family can always be growing and ideally growing exponentially. So I ask God that we would be those kind of people, that we would be expectant, that you are gonna grow your family, that we would be people who can clearly communicate the way in, the method that you've made such that we can find ourselves underneath your covenant blessings. We love you, God. We thank you for binding us to one another, for making us who were many into one body in your name. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus.